On today's episode, we interviewed Catherine Scholes, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who just recently came out with a new book. She sure did, Doc Nick, Lost and Found, where she talks about her dad's death and the love she finds somewhere in between. Check it out. Let's talk about death, baby. Let's talk about grief and mourning. Is it argumental or existential? What's it mean to me? Let's talk about death. Hi, I'm Benny Capal, and I'm a funeral professional. And I'm Nicholas Capal, a psychologist. Hey, Nick, let's talk about death. Let's do it. Hey, Doc Nick, we have a really special guest with us today. Catherine Schulz, a staff writer at The New Yorker, Pulitzer Prize winner. Congratulations on that. That is awesome. That is incredible. Let's just take a moment of clap. Just a yeah, little, just a little, a golf, little clap. golf clap. Let's in. get it. Let's, Let's get in. it. That's, I mean, Thank you that's very much. They're going. That's perfect. <laughs> She's been on TED Talks. She's got this new book, Lost and Found. The lost part, which is very, very significant to Doc Nick and I, is on losing your father. First and foremost, uh, Catherine, your, your dad's name. Uh, my father's name was Isaac Schultz. From Doc, Nick, and I, we want to give our condolences for your father, Isaac. That is um, quite a loss. And from what it looks like in your book, it was quite a um, monumental moment for you. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that all happened and where you were at that point? Sure. Uh, my father died in 2016. Um, and, you know, as I say in the book, his death was... Um, Actually, not. I, I wouldn't call it a tragedy. It was incredibly sad. Uh, I was incredibly sad about it. But you know, he was seventy-four years old. He had lived a long and, in many ways, a, a truly remarkable life. So uh, you know, and, and he died um, relatively peacefully and, and surrounded by people who loved him very much. So, in many ways, it was it was probably about as close as you could get to what you would call a, a good death. And I think that's that's part of why it was so shocking to me because it it brought home to me the extent to which even a good death is incredibly devastating <laughs> you know and, and and even when you're spared more difficult circumstances a, a loss like that um, is is really painful and really life-altering and and can take quite a lot of time to make your peace with you know it's it, it's interesting you mentioned the idea of a traumatic death right and I think the one thing that I've at least experienced in, in my neck of the woods and in, in dealing with um, clients who are suffering from loss is that doesn't necessarily have to be traumatic to be traumatic, if that makes sense. Um, I think that society, we have this like belief that if it wasn't traumatic, then you shouldn't be suffering from like PTSD or like, and the reality is, is that that moment of, um, that experience of losing such a loved person in one's life can be traumatic traumatic in itself. So I just wanted to clarify that because I, I think the thing is, is that be, just because it wasn't traumatic in the, the sense of like a murder death or um, COVID death doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't tr a traumatic death for you because I think everybody's experience is so subjective, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of what I write about in the book is is what I consider to be ordinary life. And I think in memoirs, uh, contemporary memoirs in particular, there is often, um, for, for very good reasons, there's a lot of focus on 
the extreme, right, on kind of obvious trauma uh, and, and, and drastic trauma. And um, I'm telling the story of, a, of the end of a long and good life. And I'm telling the story, I, I, the, the rest of the book is a love story, uh, which is very precious to me, of course, but also completely normal. People fall in love every day, get married every day. And a lot of what I was interested in is is the commonplace, you know, the texture of ordinary life. Because I think, um, to echo what you're saying, I think the thing about ordinary life is when it's happening to you, it's extraordinary. And even a, a death that, as you say, is not in societal terms traumatic can be terribly, terribly upsetting and disorienting to the person experiencing it. And that was certainly my experience. You know, my, my father's death um, was the stuff of obituaries every day. And yet, obviously, to me, it was a devastating loss. Well, you know, and what I, what, what I find first, first and foremost it's interesting that you do, and I think it's incredible that you bring, you mix love and grief together because I think as much as there is um, death and grief are very traumatic, there also is a lot of love in grief. And I think the actually experiencing it and, and being able to meld these two concepts, which I think in our society, especially in, in America, is we don't want to talk about death, A. So thank you for that. And B, being able to mix it with love, you know, and being able to express that the more you love, the more it hurts. Right. And, uh, I, I just want to yet again, thank you from the bottom of my heart because doc, Nick and I are really just trying to get that we can talk about death and there's a lot of good that comes from grief and death. It doesn't have to be all sadness and, and depression and anger. So thank you for that. Of course. And, you know, it's so interesting. My, um, so my book is called Lost and Found, and it's in three parts. And, and the first section, Lost, tells the story of my father's death and my grief about it. And the second section, Found, uh, tells the story of, um, of finding my partner and marrying her. But the last section of the book is called And, uh, Lost and Found. The third section is called And. And it's about exactly what you're talking about, which is the absolute impossibility of separating our love from our grief you know that the the deal with loving anyone a, a parent a partner a child is you have to accept the fact that that love is is the most beautiful and maybe the most precious thing in your life but you don't have control over it and it's not permanent it will end the way everything ends uh, and and conversely grief can be so painful but of course it's it's really a reflection of our love we wouldn't grieve if someone, if we hadn't loved them uh, very deeply. So I, I write quite a lot in the book about how impossible it is to separate those emotions from each other and, and how beautiful it is in many ways that um, where we find one, we always find the other. Well, I just want to take a moment to commend you in the vulnerability of sharing your story, um, allowing everybody to read it and to know something very personal to you. But I also think it's so important that we share these stories because as you can probably guess from the podcast title, let's talk about death. You know, that's our big goal is to educate people. And I think one of the best ways we can educate is through personal stories, right? And experiences. And, and again, even though grief is so different from person to person, that pain, that hurt, I think is kind of universal. You know, when you truly love someone, it's going to hurt when you lose them. That's just the reality. And I, I think you sharing that and then mixing it in with love, I think is so important that, you know, especially for people that are in the, the beginning cycle of grief, 
they get lost. They get lost in that that grief, and they sometimes it, it's almost suffocating because they can't seem to grab on to anything else but focus on the grief. So to patch, I guess, both of those ideas together, the, the grief and the sadness and, and the hurt and the pain with also this almost like a, uh, uh, like a new beginning of love. And how do we, how do we somehow continue with our, our existence, you know, this meaninglessness, painful existence that we have to find meaning and cope with uh, the terror of death, but also try to make the best out of it. You know, writing is interesting. I, I think it's, um, it's obviously possible to write as an act of catharsis, you know, to, um, to help yourself think through what's happened to you and, and ultimately to feel better about it. And I think that kind of writing is incredibly important. Uh, but because writing is what I do for a living, I do approach it a little bit differently. And in my case, by the time I sat down to write about my father's death, um, I would never want to say that I was, you know, done grieving him. It's not like, you know, grief is not a road that dead ends somewhere. You've reached the terminus and you turn left or turn right and you're not on it anymore. I think anyone who's ever grieved knows that um, it's quite cyclical and, and strange and it can come back to you at unexpected moments, including long after you thought you'd kind of make your major peace with a loss. Uh, but in terms of writing the book, I, I, I was writing about feelings I had already had and that I had thought about very deeply and felt very deeply. And in a way, it was quite wonderful and quite peaceful to revisit them from a different place, which was the place of how can I best share this with readers, including readers who might be facing their own losses or remembering their own losses? And what's the what's the core idea here? Or what's the language I can use here that that will reach these people and maybe offer them a little bit of solace? Yeah, there is there is no graduating grief. You don't just get to someday and you're like, well, graduated. I'm all done with that. Like we don't have to, you know. No, absolutely. You 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 have those. You know, they bring up always the the, the stages of grief. You know, the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And and nobody goes through them in that cyclical order. Or they may go through them and they may start back, or they may start with one or whatnot. And yeah, absolutely, I 100% agree. But I want to go back into a couple other things. We're going to mostly talk about the book, but I did have a chance to watch your uh, Theodore talk, or some people call TED Talk. Um, and I, I really loved it. And one of the things you brought up um, in, the, in the TED Talk is the Wiley e. Coyote falling off the cliff and dying, which is interesting. And then I, I, I was listening to another podcast you said, and you said you were dying to tell the story about um, the, the earthquake and what you got the Pulitzer. And, so, and I was thinking that's so interesting how even in your outside perspective, death gets brought up. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the language of death and the metaphors of death are all around us, and we use them all the time, um, including in ways that can feel shocking or painful if you are in the middle of grieving. You know, we say, I'm dying when something is really funny and cracking us up. And, you know, that's all well and good until your, you know, partner is actually dying of lung cancer or some such thing. And, and th that kind of language can get painful. But um, it's interesting. I mean, in terms of that, uh, the, the piece that I won the Pulitzer for is about a, a fault line off the Pacific Northwest that uh, is the most dangerous fault line in the continental United States. And I was very aware of thinking about death uh, and spent a lot of time talking about death, to borrow your name, the name of your show, while I was reporting that, because it's, 
we're very, very unprepared for the next earthquake and tsunami uh, that that fault lane will unleash, and and it will bring, unfortunately, a, a tremendous tremendous amount of death along with it. So, it's certainly the case that you know even prior to this book, uh, some of my reporting has uh, really brought me very deeply in, into the land of death, into thinking about death. Actually, the, the very first piece I ever wrote for The New Yorker uh, before I was even on staff there was, uh, curiously enough, a piece about the history of death certificates. So I, I think I actually spend kind of a lot of my professional life thinking about death now, now that you mention it. Honestly, I think the more we talk about death, the more we can actually live. Um, daily dying is daily living. And reinventing ourselves through having these. And going back to the book, right? So you have this huge moment in your life, right? You're losing your father and then you're finding the love of your life. What a duality at the time, right? What a what an interesting time to find your soulmate in this situation while you're while you're going through um, this death. Um, can you go a little bit more into like that feeling? It's interesting. I um I met my partner before my father died and I married her after he died. Um, so we got kind of, the, the timing of it is such that we got sort of one of everything. You know, we had one birthday and one Thanksgiving and one Hanukkah and, and one New Year's and and then it was over. My dad was gone and, and that was the, the amount of time that the two of them overlapped uh, in my life and, and on this planet. And on the one hand, I'm grateful every single day that they got to meet. I think it would be extremely painful to me to have uh, lost my father before I met the person I was going to marry because he does feel like such a central part of my life and and so crucial to understanding who I am that it was uh, was very meaningful to me that they met. And they, they also, as it happens, kind of adored and understood each other right away. And that was really precious to me. But yes, I mean, you know, look, it's it's very, very interesting. I saw my family of origin kind of fracture with the loss of my father at the exact moment that I was making a family of my own. So it was um, it was really bittersweet. On the one hand, uh, as I said, I'm glad they met. I did feel kind of sustained in the face of my grief by, by having this new love, you know, I, it's very clear to me that if we had not yet met and I had been single when my father died, I don't want to say I wasn't devastated by his death. I was, but to be devastated is a state with a very elastic range and, and there are degrees of it. And, uh, had I been single and had I not had her in my life, it's very clear to me, I, I would have truly, uh, just become utterly unmoored and, and kind of fallen apart in the face of that death. And she really um, kept me together and, and helped me keep going in part because I think that, you know, losing someone and, and falling in love are opposite experiences in many ways. But in, in one crucial way, you know, when you fall in love with someone, a lot of what that experience is like is is that you you suddenly can picture the future. In fact, you can't stop picturing the future. You know, it's so exciting. You, you, you have this new person and, you know, in my case from very early on, I I knew I wanted to marry her and it was really exciting and we both wanted kids and in fact now have a kid. And so this whole kind of beautiful road just stretched open in front of me. And of course, when you lose someone, it's the exact opposite, right? The future that you had hoped for and anticipated just falls away. So you know, it, it did. Um, it, there's no question that the experiences echoed each other in in really uncanny ways, and also that 
her love, as I said, really did help uh, serve as a kind of fortress against some of the uh, the more truly um, undoing aspects of grief. But the truth is, I think all of us, you know, even if I hadn't been falling in love at the same time and, and making a family of my own at the same time, you know, grief, and I write about this quite a lot in the book, grief, like pretty much all human experiences, is itself really mixed. You know, I I, I was shocked, uh, and, you know, as a funeral director, this will not shock you at all, but, you know, my father's uh, memorial service was, I suppose what you might expect a memorial service to be, you know, it was, it was um, beautiful and moving and had a few light moments, but it was, it was somber in tone and um, people there were wonderful, but very sad to have lost them. And after that service was over, we, uh, it was a beautiful autumn night and uh, all of us, uh, the family and about a billion friends, my father was a very beloved person in his community. Um, went and had a, a kind of picnic on the, um, just on the, like in the backyard of, of some family friends. And I would never in a million years have believed this if you had told me so beforehand, but I am telling you, it was one of the greatest parties I've ever been to. <laughs> Even when you're not falling in love at the same time, there is surprisingly, you know, elements of joy in grief and elements of laughter in sorrow uh, and, and elements of, uh, of, of happiness, even in these kind of long, bleak, difficult days. So yeah, it, it's, as I said, part of what my book is about is the, the profound mixedness of, of human emotion and human experience. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you bring up the, the idea of the, the, af- the after, right? The, you know, whether we call it, you know, just to get together a picnic, I think is your, your term, um, or, you know, just everybody getting together and sharing stories and I think one of the things that we've realized, um, at least in my experience and, and, you know, hopefully in Ben's too, is this importance of community, especially when we lose uh, someone that we love. I think that, our, unfortunately, our society is moving more towards individualistic versus a community-based, which I think COVID has really um, shined a light on, especially with the idea that people can't gather and and can't share stories and can't share hugs. I, I, I don't know, you know, of course, for some people, hugs may be too much. It may be um, traumatic for some people. But I also think for a lot of people that human touch is such an important factor um, in just knowing that you're not alone. And I think one of the things that when I was just listening to how you were talking about that picnic, I think grief in itself is so isolating. It's so lonely, especially because we all go through it differently. We may be going through it in in a way, you know, alone because we're so, our grief is so different than everybody else's. So to have a place where we can come share, laugh, cry, um, hug, shake hands, you know, I, I think it's so important so thank you for sharing that story because I think it's important for people to hear this, especially for people that lost someone to COVID and maybe this is their first experience with a funeral. Um, it's so important to think about others because maybe you don't need a service. Maybe um, you you don't feel the necessity for it, but there may be someone in your family that needs that. I mean, a really strange feature of this pandemic is it has made us grateful for things we never 
kind of paused to be grateful for before. Whoever thought we'd be grateful to, you know, I'm grateful for my friends. I love them, but I, I never stopped to be grateful for like, I can hang out with my friends, right? That seemed like a given mm. of life and, and not the kind of thing that could get taken away. And likewise, I, I could never have imagined when my father was dying, circumstances that would have prevented me from being in the hospital with him or, or having a service for him and a celebration afterward. And I, I really do feel fortunate that I got to be with him. And I, um, it, it breaks my heart, all the people who did not get to sit with their loved ones while they were dying, which I think is such a fundamentally important part of being human. And, and to your point, I, I think it's already eroded some in our society. I, I don't think we sit with the dying and the sick as much as we should and as much as we used to. And it's it's hard and it's sad, but it's also a great honor. And, and the time I spent at my father's side when he was dying is very precious to me. I would believe me rather have spent another 20 years at his side when he was living, but it, but it was incredibly meaningful to be there when he was dying. And I really, um, I, I can't imagine being deprived of that. And I think it must make both grieving and, and emerging from grief much harder for the people who lost someone during a pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And going to your um, honor of being able to, to sit bedside by your father, uh, Doc Nick and I had the opportunity to watch our grandfather um, in his last couple of days. We actually got to watch him um, take his last final breaths and be there and, and hear our grandmother whisper, it's okay to go. It was an interesting experience, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I think it made me a better professional um, and it made me completely understand um, some of that the families come in with. And so, you know what, if we could go into that, Catherine, a little bit, you mentioned in a little bit about the hospice side and your dad was, was ill. If you don't mind, do you, can you go into that a little bit, that experience? Yeah, I would be happy to. Uh, I actually have strong feelings about it. Um, so my father, uh, my father was sick for a long time before he died, but not in a very straightforward way. You know, he didn't have cancer or Parkinson's or, or, or frankly, any clear-cut diagnosis. Uh, he had um, a lot of the kind of problems that are just sort of standard issue old age problems in this country. You know, he had cardiac issues and he had high blood pressure. Um, but he also had a, a fairly mysterious autoimmune disorder that uh, literally the, the finest doctors at the Cleveland Clinic could never quite figure out what was going on with him. And it made his health quite unstable uh, and, and caused a whole array of sort of unrelated and unpredictable problems, all of which meant that when he went into the hospital for what, what turned out to be the final time, there was no real knowing it was the final time. There was no real knowing, you know, they, they could tell us kind of piece by piece what was going wrong. Oh, you know, for some reason, his white blood cell count is high, or for some reason, he's tachycardic or, you know, this kind of thing. But they, they, they couldn't say, or they didn't say, you know, your father has X situation, <laughs> X condition, X disease. Uh, this is what we're seeing. Um, and one difficulty with that is I think it exacerbated with a tendency which is pretty pronounced in a lot of modern American hospitals anyway, which is to do anything possible to treat every possible symptom or condition, even as it becomes increasingly apparent that the cost of doing so is very, very high and that the odds of the person a, surviving, and, and B, having a life that's worth living after all of these interventions just is plummeting and plummeting and plummeting. And the truth is, you know, my father was, 
I think probably well past the, the place where that should have been obvious uh, to any medical professional and no medical professional said it to us. You know, they told us all kinds of things and they suggested all kinds of tests and they identified all kinds of emergent problems. But no one who was actually on my father's care team sat us down and said, listen, this is very, very difficult, but the man you love is dying. Uh, the people who finally did that, uh, first of all, my mother and my sister, who are amazingly clear-sighted and very, very brave, just emotionally brave people, just kind of knew. They were way ahead of me on that. I, I was not sort of, uh, they led me there and that was fine, but I, I wouldn't have gotten there by myself. I wasn't <laughs> denying it. You know, I wasn't resistant to it, uh, but I wasn't prepared to just kind of stake that claim myself. Uh, but, but they were quite worried that that was what was happening. And finally, um, a very good friend of his who uh, is a doctor, but was not his doctor, uh, came to visit us in the hospital as he had done every day. And we just said, you know, what would you do? And he said, if he were my family member, I would tell him I loved him and I would let him go. And I cannot begin to express to you what a gift it was to us. And I honor doctors everywhere and they do amazing work, including doctors that kept my father alive for a very long time. But I, but I will say, I wish, um, you know, they too need to talk about death <laughs> and, and they need to do it more and they need to do it more honestly um, because it is a gift. I, I, I get why it's hard. Of course it's hard. I wasn't good at it either, but I think it is a real gift to families to be honest when, when it's clear what's happening and it was clear what was happening. Uh, and, and the flip side of that is I must say the, the hospice team was just tremendous. They were wonderful and kind and gentle uh, and, and very caring, both of my father in his final days and, and of all of us, you know, his family members. So, you know, it's, a, it's very tough, obviously, to just accept that someone you love is not going to make it. You know, they're not going to come from home from the hospital at that time. And yet, on balance, I think it's it's much better and and a more authentic and beautiful experience and and a better way to honor someone we love to accept the truth when it when it's there in front of us. You know, and that's not to say that we should never take heroic measures. There's situations where they work, right, and, and where it's important. But in a clear cut case where someone is dying, I think we owe each other the courtesy of acknowledging it. Yeah, no, and I and I think you you mentioned something you know we've talked about a lot on the podcast, and that's living versus existing, right? Is that a real having your loved one actually live or having them basically live for you? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I think a lot of doctors don't want to admit that they they can't go any further. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they're gonna try to bring anything they can to, um, because uh, you know they take pride in their work, and uh, but I think at some time you just got to be honest and be that you know what it's time. And good for your your sister and your mom for kind of getting you there because it, it makes sense. You know, we think we're we're ready for these kind of situations, but nobody's ever prepared. You know, my thought is this. You know, i i do want to I do want to give this thought out to what you were talking about because I think working in the death field in general is a very tough field. Um, we, of course, um, are being conflicted all the time with our own demise, right? Every day is a reminder that one day it's going to be me, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we as human beings and how our society works with that, we avoid talking about it. But I think we also try desperately everything we can do to live. And I think 
again, in the medical field, I think that is their focus, right? Their focus is to keep us alive. And I think that to, for some, you know, I, I think about the, 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 the show house, if anybody's watched the show house, that doctor can be kind of a jerk, but if you watch that show, you're like, I wish he would be my doctor because he's going to do the crazy stuff to keep me alive, right? He's going to do everything he can to make sure that that happens. But I think the one thing that that gets lost, and I think you nailed it, is this idea that there comes a point where we just got to let him go. We just got we just got to come to terms that death is going to happen and it's here. And unfortunately, for anybody who's grieving that person, it sucks. It's not easy. But I think it's a lot harder to see them in so much pain, in so much suffering. And I think that's where I I do want to, again, tip my hat to hospice workers because they probably, just like a funeral director or a um, psychologist who specializes in grief and loss, we get attached to these people, these families. We, it, it's almost like there is a part of us that we leave behind with each and every family that we deal with and work with. And that takes a toll because the, the reality is, is that, again, we are human beings too. And we have to live with this idea that today I'm going in and I'm going to help another person die. Going back into Lost and Found, uh, Catherine, um, can you bring up some, maybe some things that kind of caught you off guard when you were writing these pieces? When you were writing it, did you find that there was a part that maybe you thought was going to be easier and it was a lot more difficult when it came to your your talking about death and, and grieving? Um, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I um, I did find parts of this book hard to write, but it, it did not correlate very neatly to what's emotionally difficult, <laughs> meaning, you know, there there are things that are emotionally painful. And then, you know, as, as a writer, there are things that are difficult um, that, that often don't have to do with the emotional experience, if that makes sense. Uh, as it happens, I did, of the three parts of this book, I did find lost hardest to write. Uh, and, and you might imagine that would be because it was about death and, and required me to revisit in, in real clarity and real detail the experience of losing my father. But for the most part, that was not what was difficult, actually. It was, it was difficult because it was the beginning of the book and beginnings are very hard as a writer, uh, or at least for this writer. Um, and there were certain things about it that made it structurally difficult to write. But I, um, I almost had the opposite experience, meaning that there was real joy for me in the fact that I got to, um, I don't want to say bring my father back to life because that's a, a, a quite glib expression. I mean, tragically, the one thing we can do is, is never actually bring back to life the people we've lost. But, but I did get to spend a lot of time with him in my mind and in my memory and, um, probably the most gratifying thing so far about the book. It's again, very young, it's two days old, but, uh, but, but it's lovely to hear from people who, whose reaction to the book is in part, you know, gosh, your father seemed amazing. I, by the time he died, I missed him too. <laughs> and, and, and to me, that's, um, it, whatever else happens with the book that makes it worth writing it. You know, it, it was very sweet to me to be able to introduce my dad uh, and, and also my partner actually to a lot of people who would not otherwise get to know either of them. They're remarkable people. And it felt like, a, um, I hope a gift to them, but certainly a gift to me. When you were going through the, the basically the stages of your dad dying and then also finding the love of your life at the same time, almost 
Um, did you have any like guilt? It's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because I can imagine that, that there are listeners who have had that experience where, you know, everyone around you is, is experiencing a kind of relentless grief, but, but your own grief is, is punctuated or leavened by this really wonderful experience. Um, so I think that's emotionally astute. And I'm, as I said, I'm sure it, it happens to a lot of people. Um, that was not the case for me in part because, you know, primarily I was grieving my father with my mother and my sister. Um, my sister is also happily partnered and, and has a family um, and has for quite some time. So it's not like, you know, she was alone and lonely and I had this like shiny new love. So I, I had an anchor. Um, she also had an anchor, several in fact, because she, she does have children. Um, I, I think for my mom, she was very happy for me uh, that I was not going through it alone. I'm sure she would have worried a lot about me. I know she worried about me in general, I, I think, and about my sister too. I, I think even when when your children are fully grown, I am mindful that it was very sad for my mom to watch my sister and me mourn. You know, you obviously want to protect your children from grief. And of course you can't when, when your husband dies, their father. Uh, and, and I know that was hard for her. And although we begged and pleaded with her not to do it, I, I know she did try to protect us from some of her grief, not not to an extreme. And she, and she let us in in many ways. But um, But of course, as a parent, you don't want to expose them to the kind of rawness of your grief. Um, I, I never felt guilty about being in love. Um, it's hard to imagine feeling guilty about being in love. It's such a, um, such a wonderful state and a state I feel so fortunate about and grateful for every day. So I don't have any guilt around that. Um, it, it was less that the love kind of leavened the grief than that the grief darkened the love. You know, I was mindful that, you know, here's my poor partner. She meets me. I, uh, one of the things we have in common is, is we both come from very happy families and loving families to whom family matters a lot. And, uh, and we haven't known each other all together that long when like, lo and behold, there we are in a hospital together. And, you know, I, I was mindful, like, oh my gosh, I've like dragged this person into this kind of endless sick room <laughs> at the hospital and uh and then of course dragged her into grief with me her parents are both still alive and very wonderful and um you know i i don't think i was like the worst partner in the world while i was grieving my father most acutely but i no one's their best self when they're grieving and right. um yeah i mean no one's at their most fun after they've lost their father so i, I was mindful of that piece of it you know, a lot of people talk about leaving a legacy, right? And talking about the person's leg legacy. What a great way to memorialize your father through your book. People got to meet your father through this book. What a beautiful way to not only, you know, memorialize your father, but almost like open the world to the love of your life too. Mm. So kudos to you doing both. That's tough to do in one book. Yeah, it's almost yeah. You almost have like a non-going eulogy going out mm. to the world on your father, and I think that's that's impressive, right? This this epitaph, this book that will continue his he'll live on through this book through you, which is which is incredible, and and it's awesome. And going back to your piece on your partner kind of dealing through a, kind of a quick death in your relationship, I myself um, I, I married my high school sweetheart. And uh, three months into our relationship, her father committed suicide. Oh, and I gosh. think in I think in some ways, our relationship got stronger quicker because of that. Because I don't, 
I know she was her true. I got to see her true self at a very early time, not only in her age, but also in her relationship. And I think if if you can if you can go through that and you still love the person, I think I think you're doing okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, in that situation, like you're saying, like here, meet my dad. Oh, now we're going through this step, right? You know, there are these moments in life when you really see who someone is. You know, and 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 you see how you operate together in situations of extremity, emotional or otherwise. And um, yes, there's no question that our relationship deepened faster than it otherwise would have. I mean, it already felt, it felt almost from the beginning um, very deep and very connected. And and in part because we actually do both, uh, quite aside from the death of my father, um, we both care about these kind of existential questions. You know, they're, they're things we no. think about a lot. Um, you know, not by accident had she worked as a hospital chaplain. You have to really be thinking about life and, and death and the meaning of both of them to do that work and do it well. But so we already, it, it already felt deep, but of course it is very different to kind of walk side by side with someone through an experience like that. And, and you're totally right. It, um, I, I, I'm confident we would have gotten there anyway, but I do think it accelerated certain parts of our closeness. One last uh, question I had for you. You mentioned this idea of the euphemisms around death and dying, you know, the the, the passed away or um, they're in a better place or, you know, and one of the things I thought about, you know, because we, we've, we've talked about this on the show, this idea of what not to say to people that are grieving, um, because I think, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction, right? They're uncomfortable. So, oh, you know, uh, I'm thinking about you <laughs> or uh, I'm here if you need anything, right? Yeah, or, call me if you need me for anything. Yeah. And, and I think I, I think I would love to hear your because because you got stuck on the word lost right that was the the word that really resonated yeah right, resonated, resonated sure with did. you um can you speak more to that sure yeah it's actually how the book opens um yes i i really have just always disliked the kind of pat things people say in the face of death you know this kind of um you know this language of oh he's in a better place or oh i'm so you know he passed on or you know, it's just, it's never worked for me. And I don't want to be dismissive because that language exists. Um, I think in part to give people something to say in moments when it's very hard to know what to say. And I'm sympathetic to how difficult that is. And I also think that language is meaningful to some people. You know, I think there's some people for whom the idea of, you know, gone home or gone to a better place is, is, is actually their rock, you know, and their reassurance and it's how they get through grief. But I am not one of those people and I did not find it, any of it comforting. Um, but, but yes, in all that, kind of set of, of ways to talk about death that don't involve saying the word death. <laughs> um, it, there was one that, that did feel meaningful to me and it was that word lost, you know, you lost your father, uh, which right away actually felt emotionally accurate to me. You know, when, when you're lost, you are scared, you are isolated, you are profoundly disoriented, you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going. And I thought, well, that actually is what grief is like <laughs> you know that that doesn't even seem yeah. like a euphemism oh, yeah. that seems actually accurate uh so so yes from the beginning uh, this idea of, of lostness um was really interesting to me and 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 a lot of the project of the per first part of this book is is not just to tell the story of grief and think about grief but to think about this larger category of loss and then the whole range of things we lose and what if anything they, they have in common and, and i do think our losses have a lot in common 
You know, it's interesting because, and, and we talked about this, the idea of everybody grieves differently and everybody has a subjective experience. I've heard from a lot of people the opposite when it comes to the, the word loss. Like, I didn't lose them. They died. You know, and it, it's interesting because I, I also think it's all about timing, too, when they say these words, you know. Because, again, everybody goes through it differently. Maybe maybe you hit the person at an anger um, part of their process. And no matter what you say, it's, it's, it's not going to resonate. So, you know, maybe one, this might be a good education moment. Maybe the more important thing is just being present and don't worry about what to say. Maybe not saying something is actually the best way to go and just be there. And, and again, I was taught, you know, touching on the idea of, of touch, you know, this idea of just this presence and, and how much, um, or for how important for mo for a lot of people is this presence, this, this, um, community and that I'm not alone. And then it's, even though it sucks that I have to wake up every day without X, whoever the person was, I still have people in my life to share joy. I still have people in my life that do want to listen to me rant about all the feelings I'm having right now. And I think that's so important. And to really, and not just being there, but listening. So yeah, no, I just, it, it just, when you, when, you know, the, the word loss resonating with you. I was just interested in your story. Sure. I'm sympathetic to people for whom it's not the right word, you know, because again, for me, most words were not the right word, including ones that I know are very comforting to other people. And I also think you're right that um, what is and is not the right word really varies from moment to moment, from death to death. I mean, I can tell you right now, I lost someone earlier in my life to violence. And actually, I don't think the word lost would have felt as applicable to that because it, it seemed... Uh, as if that person had been really actively taken away, which is very different than than someone dying peacefully in old age. So, I absolutely think that uh, you you can't you know there's not a, a one size fits all for any of it. Not for language, not for touch, not for how they're going to move through grief, not for how to move through it with them. But I, I certainly think you're right that on some level the details don't matter. You know the words don't matter. Plenty of people who use words I would not use were sources of great comfort to me after my father died because they are loving and stalwart and checked in on me and told me they were thinking about my father and said his name. And there, there's any number of ways to be present for someone. And I I would never hold against someone else, you know, the wrong word choice here or there. And, and I, I hope we all would extend that courtesy to people because we're not mind readers. You know, we, we don't know what someone needs, but, but we can certainly count on the fact that they need love and steadfast presence and and sometimes frankly just a meal you know or yeah absolutely. someone did someone to do the pragmatics for them yeah well Catherine, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and talking talking to these dweebs about death because it is it is so important to do that and you know we are always up for an existential conversation Catherine. so if you need some other uh walls to bounce ideas off of you you know where to find us. So your book's out. You can find it everywhere, right? I would assume every it's anywhere and everywhere. It's anywhere uh, and everywhere. Any, <laughs> go get it. Lost and Found, Catherine Shells. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. You're going to love it. It's going to change your world. Um, and and it's about death. So yeah, go go out and go out and go out and read it. Give it a good read. 
for a person with ADHD, is it on audiobooks yet? It is on audiobook, <laughs> and I myself read it. So you, if you Ooh, hated okay. my Double voice win. this last hour, don't go listen to it. But if you if you enjoyed this <laughs> podcast, then yes, you could hear me read my own book. Oh. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yet again, Catherine, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing and really getting into your life experience. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And if you haven't, uh, please like us, review us, send you send us any of your questions. We really appreciate it out there. And Doc Nick, if you're not talking about death, you aren't living. Thank you. Have a great night.